0: Would you join with me and pray again and ask God's blessing on his word preached let's pray Speak uh, Lord Jesus as we come to you Speak from your word you're the living prophet Who has much to say to us today You're our king and so your word comes with power to transform us Pray that you would do a work of conversion on the unconverted today. That you would help all of us to see Jesus. And to love him. And to entrust more of our lives to his care. Build our faith. Defeat our unbelief. And make us more like your son. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, our mission as a church is to make flourishing disciples of jesus we say this in much different ways a lot of times i'll say it this way that our goal is a church our mission is a church and it's not something we've come up with but have been given to god, from god by his word is to multiply disciples and and churches it's just really simple this is the command that jesus gave to his church in matthew 28 make disciples of all the nations And so we want to see in doing that, our goal is to see the fame, the glory of Jesus spread deep into people's hearts and wide so that many come to know him. We're not going to fall into the trap of having to decide to compromise. Do we go deep or wide? We want to see the maximum amount of truth enter into the deepest parts of people's hearts to make the maximum impact on the maximum number of people. We want to see... The maximum amount of people reached with the fullness of God's word so that lives are transformed by Jesus. So that people become flourishing disciples of Jesus. That's our mission as a church. And what John is doing here in his gospel is he is introducing us to Jesus with this intent. He's just been very clear. This is the reason that I've written this book Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And so what John is doing in this portion of his gospel is he is introducing us to Jesus as God's Son, so that we would follow Him by showing us what following Him looks like in the lives of His followers. So, starting in verse 19, verses 1 through 18 is His prologue, it's His introduction, His preface to His gospel. And in verse 19, He transitions to the first part of His gospel. This John's gospel is really easy to understand in terms of structure. There's the prologue in verse eight one through eighteen and verses nineteen all the way through the end of chapter twelve is the first introduction to Jesus. Let me show you who he is by showing you his signs and then verse and then chapter thirteen all the way through almost to the end of his gospel through the end of verse of chapter nineteen is is really centered on the cross the crucifixion of jesus and so in these first verses, John the gospel writer is introducing us to the disciples of Jesus. And he's going to use a literary technique to do that, Two in particular. He's going to structure it around days, and then he's going to structure it around the idea of seeing. So the verses and the chapter divisions that we have in our Bible aren't original. You may not know that, but they're not original too the writers of scripture it was in fact they were only added about 500 years ago as just a tool to help us find things in the Bible and they're a good tool but for the original writers they didn't have those they didn't have chapters to break up their thoughts and so they used literary techniques to kind of break things up and communicate their message and one of the things that John does here in John 1 19 through 51 is to use uh, the idea of days and so Verse, uh, verses uh, 19 through 28 is day 1. Verses 29, starting in verse 29, you read this. The next day, day 2, verse 35. The next day, day 3, verse 43. The next day, um, and on and on. It's four days, basically what we have here in these chapters. is four days in the life of Jesus' first disciples. And the other theme, as I said, that John is going to repeat is the idea of seeing, or it's going to show up as beholding, which is just a strong way of saying, look, look at this. So really what you have in this first part of his introduction to who Jesus is, is John saying, let me show you so that you'll see what a flourishing disciple of Jesus actually looks like. And a flourishing disciple is... He shows us on day one, a flourishing disciple of Jesus first sees who they are not. On on day one, the Jews and the Levites, starting with verse 19, come to John the Baptist. And they ask him this question, who are you? Now, John the Baptist is Jesus' older cousin. He precedes Jesus by about six months and he's been out developing a group of followers for himself and baptizing and the men, these men come from Jerusalem. John is on the other side of the Jordan River, just a long ways from Jerusalem. They've heard about his, his name, his renown, his reputation as a major player in the religious landscape and John's been gathering disciples and so he's, he's garnered the interest of the religious leaders, particularly those surrounding the temple in Jerusalem. And so they approach him and they say, who are you? Like, account for yourself. Tell us who you are. And then in verses 19 through 28, this first day, John, as he's asked, who are you, answers in a really peculiar way. He tells them who he's not. He answers with a denial. Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, how freeing would it be? This is just a free aside. How freeing would it be if we could just put that on our lips? Like moms, I'm not the Christ of my children. Or I'm not the Christ of my business. Or I'm not the Christ of my, <clears throat> my friend's problems. I am not the answer that you're looking for. Then they ask John if he is one of the predecessors who would come before the Messiah. Are you Elijah? They knew their Bible. And the last paragraph of the last book of the prophets was Malachi 4 that Mark had read. And Malachi 4 brought Moses into view and promised that Elijah would precede the great and awesome day of the Lord when he would come and make things right in the world again. And so they asked him, are you the predator? If you're not the Christ, are you the predecessor? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet?" Back in Deuteronomy, Moses had promised that a greater prophet than himself would arise. No. And who are you? We need to give back and give an answer to the Pharisees who sent us. And he said, look, here's who I am. I am just the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. My goal, I'm just making a way for people to come to Jesus. And so then they ask him, why do you baptize? If you aren't one of these great redemptive figures from the Bible, if you're just nobody as you say you are, why are you baptizing? And John answers them in verse 26. I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am worthy, unworthy to untie. It's a profound statement of humility when he says that. You see, in the ancient Near East, there was a structure of who could do what. A servant couldn't untie someone's sandals. The sandals, you imagine walking the dirty streets of the ancient Near East where dung-covered roads, uh, feet were disgusting. And a servant couldn't untie the sandals. Only a slave could, and actually only the lowest of the slave, servant, slave, least of the slaves, could untie someone's sandals. And John is saying in a profound statement of humility, uh, knowing who he is not, I am not worthy to untie the sandals of the one who's coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Look, we live in a time when the way to flourishing is, look at me. Look at how awesome I am. My awesome wardrobe. Post on Instagram or Facebook. Facebook. Let me post my awesome experience. Let me tell you about my awesome family. Look at my awesome accomplishments. And it's no surprise that in a culture that celebrates awesomeness, depression and anxiety are skyrocketing at the same time. It is so hard to stand on the treadmill of awesomeness that we end up hiding our true selves because we are so broken. And the utter oppression of awesomeness leaves us utterly lonely. And so John is just breaking in and showing us that there is another way to flourishing and that is to unload the burden of awesomeness onto Jesus. And it moves us from, look at me. A burden we can't bear is crushing us to look at him. A burden that he can bear a flourishing disciple first sees who we're not and we're just okay with it because we've been connected to the awesomeness of Jesus, which is where we go next because John sir, sees who he is not and he shows us what a flourishing disciple sees that we're not. But then he says a flourishing disciple sees Jesus because we know who we're not, we know who Jesus is particularly for us. Because if you just stop like who I'm not, that is just despair. If you've got the courage to say, look, I'm not awesome, and you just stop there, then you'll end up with despair. And God does not want his people to despair. And so the flourishing disciple sees Jesus as for us. So the first thing that John sees on day two, starting with verse 13, 29, is this. He saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He actually sees in the rest of this chapter, we'll see two things that John sees about Jesus and then one thing that Jesus says that his disciples will see about him. And the first thing that he sees is this is the Lamb. Behold, he's saying, look. That's a strong way of saying, look. Draw all of your attention. Look. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a loaded title, an important title for Jesus. As his first introduction on John's lips, as the one who's making a pathway to Jesus, let me tell you the first thing that you need to know about him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a loaded title. Because lambs were built into the life of Israel as a substitute for sin. When God came through in judgment at the Passover, came through judging Egypt, the only way the Israelites were slave, were saved is if they slayed a lamb and put the lamb over the doorpost of their house and that blood covered them. That blood of the lamb was a substitute for them so that God's judgment would pass over. And then throughout the life of Israel, lambs were frequently slaughtered for the sins of God's people. At the temple, but I think to get at what John, he's drawing all of that attention to Jesus and saying, "Here's the fulfillment of that." But I think he's actually going back a lot further in the story of redemption. He's taking us all the way back to a question that was asked in Genesis 22, because God had asked Abraham to do something profound: take your one and only son the son on whom I had attached the whole of my redemptive plan to, the son that was given to you as a promise in very old age in your life, and I want you to take him and march up that mountain and sacrifice him. And so as they're going up the mountain, Isaac looks around and he says to his dad, Father, I see the fire, I see the wood, but I don't see the lamb. Abraham's promise to him, is his answer is God will provide For himself a lamb for the burnt offering he'll be your your substitute don't worry god will redeem through the life of a lamb he'll act as your substitute well isaac is spared they get up to the top and just at the moment of crisis god does intervene and he provides but he provides a ram and the question just hangs in the air For the rest of the Old Testament, where is the lamb that would be provided? And so John's announcement is the great answer to the question that has been hanging in the air. Who will die as the substitute? Where will the lamb be that stands and takes the wrath of God's people for our sin? And John's answer breaks into the world. Behold, look, there he is, the lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. In the shadow of Abraham being asked to do what God would eventually do. God provides his own son to bear our sins. The lamb of God. Provided by God's own hand. The one that we have offended with our sin and provoked his wrath. Is the same one who provides the substitute for our sin. And he sees Jesus as the one who is the Lamb of God, which opens up the door for the next thing that John sees. Because this is what the gospel says. Because I'll sacrifice my son for your sins. God says I'll take you as you are. Come to me as you are. But the gospel also says to us, I won't love you I will love you so much that I won't leave you as you are, which opens up the door for the next thing that John sees. Verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John was a baptizer, which meant he used water in a ritual way the meaning of john's baptism is a little different than when we celebrated today it was very common it's what happens a lot in the bible common practices are taken and then transformed like jesus takes a simple meal and transforms it into the lord's supper circumcision wasn't invented by israel it was transformed by god as a sign And, and baptism was the same thing in the days of john john's baptism was a little different than what we do today because his baptism was an initiation rite of preparation. A baptism of repentance. Or an act of ritual cleansing in preparation for God's kingdom to come. And so we contrast this. Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so this is what John saw. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. The dove in the Bible is a sign of new creation coming down, and it remained on him. It's important, it remained on Jesus, so that he was able then to give his spirit to all who belonged. And so this is what John is saying. Look, the one that I saw this happen to is going to do a greater work of cleansing for new life in God's kingdom, because my baptism only cleanses the outside of the person. But when Jesus cleanses with the Holy Spirit... From power, with power, he's going to cleanse the inside of the person and free them from the dominion and enslavement of sin. He's going to make a new people. He's going to invade people's lives and remake them from the inside out. And they're going to change. They'll become a new creation, a new creation people, a new humanity. So there's tremendous hope for change as a flourishing disciple hangs on to that hope, he looks inside and says, there is nothing in me that is, has the power to change me from the inside out. I'm, just, I'm so broken, I can't do anything about it. And he looks and says, but Jesus has given me his spirit. And the hope for flourishing and change hangs on to him. And he's not just someone who died for my sins and is outside of me. He's someone who lives inside of me by his spirit. And lastly, at the end of the chapter, Jesus then says, this is of the two things that a flourishing disciple of Jesus sees. He sees he's a sacrifice for my sin. He's the one who changes me with his spirit. And Jesus says, guess what? My disciples will actually see something too. At the end of the chapter, Jesus had gathered five of his disciples to see him, and they start to follow him. One of those disciples, Nathanael, is introduced to Jesus by Philip. And Nathanael hears about Jesus and he hears that he's from Nazareth, like a backwoods town of Israel. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus, he sees him from a distance and he hears this going on. And so when he approaches Nathanael, he says to him, look, there's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. There's no fakeness to the man. You see what you get with him. Jesus actually embraces that. He actually welcomes it. He brings Nathanael. He's not turned off by that. He's like, look, there's no faking in this guy. He just says what he thinks and I like it. And then he says to Nathanael, I saw you. And Nathanael sees differently. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. It's a radical transformation. Goes from saying, Is there anything good come out of Nazareth saying, like this is the guy on whom the whole of the world hangs as the Son of God and King of Israel? Nathaniel sees differently. And Jesus rewards Nathaniel's new sight with the promise that he'll see Jesus do greater things. Verse fifty one. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a rich vision that ties all the way back to Jacob's story. It's a vision of God coming down, making heaven and earth meet. See, Jacob, at the end of his story, falls asleep one night, back in Genesis 28, and he has a dream, and while he sleeps, he sees a ladder touching the ground where he was sleeping and rising its top all the way up to heaven. And he sees on this ladder angels ascending and descending. And then God proclaimed to him, this is what's happened. I've come down to be with you. And when I've come down to be with you, this is my promise. I'm with you wherever you go and I will keep you. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised. I'm going to be in your presence. I won't leave you behind this is enough. And you see what Jesus is saying. Look, the ladder was the place where God connected to the brokenness of earth. Where God in all of his redeeming power with the bro- connected with the broken needs of the world. And he says, look, I'm that ladder. I am the one who connects God's great redeeming power with the brokenness of the world. And John with like a tremendous artist. layers and textures to his paintings so the longer you look the more you see the more grand and exquisite this vision of Jesus becomes he's the lamb who substitutes himself under God's wrath to deliver us into God's favor he's the one who gives his spirit to deliver us so we can experience change in our lives by Jesus' power not by our own And then Jesus is the presence of God who comes down to meet us in our brokenness with all of his redeeming power. a flourishing disciple of Jesus is captivated by this vision. It's interesting how this gospel spreads. It starts with... John handing over Andrew and an unnamed disciple. That unnamed disciple is most likely John, the writer of this gospel. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, hears about this. Jesus, Jesus comes into his life, actually changes him, evidenced by the fact he changes his name from Simon to Cephas, to the rock, to Peter. And then Andrew and Peter say, look... We've got to take this guy to our hometown. And they go to his home to their hometown, and all of a sudden Philip follows, and then Philip finds Nathaniel, and Nathaniel becomes a follower of Jesus. And this is just the way God works. People come to see the beauty of Jesus as the most basic one. He just hits us where we're at. He, is, he just meets our most basic needs. Because what do we need more than these two things? I need to be accepted as I am. I need to be changed so I can become someone different. I need to be loved as I am, but loved enough to be transformed. What is more basic than those two needs in our lives? Is it not everything that we do trying to meet those two needs and the sufficiency, the fame, the enoughness of Jesus begins to infiltrate the relationships that are built in. And so look, if we would just start praying, God, help us to see, help me to see more of the beauty of Jesus, but then help, like there's people in your lives, there's family and coworkers and friends, I want them to see, I want them to see Jesus. So would you open their eyes and then say, come and see I think we make evangelism too difficult we just are always trying to figure out like how do I do this we get it I mean look I, I always see like <clears throat> if you're on Instagram I mean how many this is what ends up happening people don't post on Instagram till they go on vacations and then all of a sudden you're just like whoa man you're just seeing post after post after post because they're having an amazing experience and they want to share it that's what we do now you're if you're an older generation this is what you used to do with slideshows Like, you'd have a a dinner party, invite everyone over, and they'd have to watch your slideshows of your vacation. All you're doing is saying, I I had had an amazing experience. Come and see. You see, that's what happens. Beauty is meant to be amazing, uh, amaze us, and amazing beauty is meant to be shared. There's more to Jesus' beauty than we'll see for all eternity. We'll spend all of eternity just plumbing the depths of the sufficient beauty of Jesus. It will captivate, it will amaze, it will change hearts and minds. So we just gotta get in the, come and see, just come and see. And see lives transformed by the Lamb of God who baptizes with His Spirit and makes heaven and earth meet with all of its redeeming power. Let's pray.